Working remotely, where you are shouldn't dictate what you do. Work from the road by turning your vehicle into a reliable high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, take your work on the road and AT&T will be there to keep you connected. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls, finish up that presentation, or answer last-minute emails. Why wait? Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi today for free trial eligibility. Based on independent third-party data, number of devices varies by manufacturer. Always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy last year by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. No surprise here, but you know I gotta have my devices when I travel. I would be lost without my smartphone. I use it for directions, to find things to do, and most importantly, where to eat. I rely on it as a digital music player to enhance my experience as I explore a new place. Oh, and sometimes I even use it to make calls and stuff. That's the kind of traveler I am. And if you travel, you know what kind you are, too. That's why you go with the Delta SkyMiles Platinum American Express card. If you travel, you know. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Hey there, Tech Stuff listeners. This is Jonathan Strickland, and I've got a request for all of you. Now, Chris and I have decided that we're going to try an experiment. We're doing our first crowdsourced episode of Tech Stuff, and we want to know what your pick is for the worst video game of all time. Now, nominations, you can you can make one nomination. You nominate one game, and you need to tell us the name of the game and the platform it was on. And it can be any platform. It can be an arcade game. It can be a PC, Mac, uh, Xbox, PS3, Nintendo, handheld console. It can be web-based if you like. But just you let us know what the platform is so we can make sure we count that as the votes. So you can nominate your game either through email, which is techstuff at howstuffworks.com, or you can nominate through Twitter or Facebook. And we're going to put a uh, cutoff date on this. I, I want to have the episode go up by the end of September of 2011. So let's say you need to get your nominations in by September 8th, 2011. So if you get those nominations into us, we will make sure we include those in the process and we will have an episode where we give you the worst video games of all time based upon the votes of our listeners. Thanks a lot. Can't wait to hear from you. 
touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello again, everyone. Welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Chris Paulette, and I'm an editor at HowStuffWorks.com. Sitting across from me, as usual, is senior writer Jonathan Strickland. Butterfly in the sky, I can go twice as high. <laughs> nice. Thank you. Uh, you know, originally we were talking about the possibility of doing an ebooks podcast, and then we realized we've done an ebooks podcast, but we really haven't talked about a lot of the developments in publishing since then. That's right. And, uh, and we had some listeners on Google Plus, so here's a, a little note from Google Plus. And John and Paul. Very biblical fellows, I suppose. Gave or us very Beatle fellows. Or very Beatle fellows, perhaps so. But both John and Paul had asked that we uh, talk about e-books and e-publishing. Uh, John was very insistent. Uh, by the way, John, we do have an episode on e-books, which I had completely forgotten about. Um, I believe Chris did as well. And yep. we just, uh, this morning, as I was, as I was looking at my notes, I realized, wait a minute, this sounds really familiar. And sure enough, we have done one. But yeah, we wanted to talk about sort of the back end, not from a technological perspective so much as from sort of a, a business perspective uh, about, uh, publishing, what publishers do. And how that's starting to change in the ebook era. Yeah. So I guess first we should just start talking about what publishers do. Okay. Yeah, that, that's actually a good question. Uh, especially because a lot of the, the, uh, discussions I've read recently, uh, and when I say recently, I would guess probably, I think I'm thinking about probably the last year. Uh, because ebooks have become a lot more popular. Oh yeah. Uh, you see, uh, news reports from Amazon that they are outselling paperbacks now. Yeah. I think it was, a uh, like for every 100 paperbacks Amazon sold, they'd sell 115 ebooks. So it's already matched and outpaced the, uh, the dead tree version of, of, uh, books. Yep. But the thing is, a lot of, in a lot of cases, the electronic version of the book costs close to, if not as much as, or in some cases more than, um, the, uh, the price of a paper book or P book, as I like to call them. Mm-hmm. Um, and people go, what the heck is going on here? If this is just bits and bytes, it doesn't take up any floor space. You don't have to design uh, a special cover for it. Um, you know, what are the publishers doing? What is the point of this? Yeah. And then you, you have to realize that they actually do quite a bit. Yeah. So let's let's look at it from uh, let's let's take electronic publishing out of the picture right now and, and just, just talk, talk about, about publishers and what they do. Okay. Uh, from a traditional standpoint, so traditionally, what a publisher would do is uh, you you have you have your authors. These are the people who are creating work. Right mm-hmm. there. Then you've got editors who are editing the work, making sure it it it's uh, um, worthy of publication. Right. Now, the publisher is the, the entity that takes that work and produces it in a mass production uh, kind of way. And then so that they're into production, they're into distribution in that they uh, find buyers that buy up uh, several units of books all at once. Mm-hmm. So bookstores really is what we're talking about here. Right. Publishers look for bookstores, outlets to sell these. So the, the publisher's customers are really bookstores. They're not really readers. Like you and I aren't aren't a typical customer of a publisher, right? But rather a, a Barnes and Noble or until recently a Borders would be a customer of a publisher, right? So 
the publisher's job is to create to to produce the the physical copies of this work to send it to the various uh, or actually sell it to the various uh, bookstores out there vendors out there um for a price that's usually about half of what the list price is for the book although your mileage may vary it's going to depend on a lot of conditions yeah so th- let's say like the the price that's actually on the cover of the book mm-hmm. We're oversimplifying here, but in general, the wholesale price that the publisher sells to the bookstore is about 50% of that. And then, uh, uh, a certain percentage of that goes to overhead. Some of it goes to, uh, covering the cost of paying the advance to the author. And also you have to keep in mind that bookstores don't sell every single copy of every book. Right. So occasionally bookstores have to send back copies of books they don't sell to the publisher. Um, in order to make up room for uh, new books. Right. So that means that not everything a publisher sends out is actually going to get sold. Some of it's going to come back. So there are a lot of costs here. And also a publisher's other job is to market the authors, to get the word out about authors and to drive up interest about authors. So that's one of the things publishers theoretically will do for their for the people who write for them. Yeah. In, a way, in that way, I would say um... – when you said a few minutes ago that uh, that the uh, reader is not the end customer of the publisher, I would say that's that's mostly the case. But in in some ways, I mean, it is their responsibility to do a lot of the marketing work, and so you know, th- yeah, they are in touch with the reader, and they they do that as a small portion of that. But yeah, and they're and- really trying to help the bookstore sell books so that both the bookstore and the publisher win out. And you can buy books. Author. You can buy books directly from the publisher, but in general that tends to be a very small number yeah. of sales compared to book sales through uh, stores. Yeah. And so uh you also have another responsibility of publishers which is kind of interesting and this is an important one that uh is going to be uh have a a pretty big impact with the electronic publishing uh uh era as well. Mm-hmm. And that is that uh, publishers are responsible for finding new talent. Right. It's kind of like the music industry. When you think of like a, a music label going out and look, going to local venues and, and scouting out bands and saying, you know, this band actually has some promise and they might not make it big for an album or two, but I really see something in them. Mm-hmm. Publishers do the same thing with authors. Now, when an author writes a book, uh, the author gen- – Generally gets an advance on that book, and that advance is a, a royalties advance. It's it's actually counted against whatever royalties that author would make through book sales. Mm-hmm. Well, a lot of authors, especially first time authors, will not make that money back through book sales. They they just aren't well known enough, so they they won't get enough books sold to pay off that advance. So a lot of publishers are essentially paying authors at a loss, um, lots of new authors at a loss. But they're doing it by they're betting. What they're betting is that some of those authors are going to make it to the big time, mm-hmm. and those authors are going to sell lots and lots and lots of books, and that will help offset the cost of paying all these other low level authors who may not go anywhere that advance. So, in a way, publishers are responsible for encouraging and and sustaining. Uh, authors who are trying to really make it in the publishing world and trying to actually become published authors. Mm -hmm. Uh, Without them, then you would have, you know, you wouldn't have that, that incentive 
really, for authors to try and create. So when you think about things like, oh, well, Stephen King, man, he gets so much money for a book. Uh, you know, you could have some envy there. Or perhaps you might question whether or not it's it, the the work he does is worth the amount of money he makes. But at the same time, because Stephen King novels sell so well, that's part of what funds the publisher to uh, to encourage other authors to write. Mm-hmm. So it's it's kind of it's a really big ecosystem and it's actually pretty complex. I mean, the actual complexity of how much money comes back to the publisher and where that money goes uh, is probably too complex for the purposes of this podcast. But I thought that it was important that we talk about that. And then we talk about how e-publishing is kind of shaking things up a bit mm-hmm. or more than a bit in some cases. Well, you talked about um, the music industry and how how things have changed significantly, how the the music industry has been nervous because uh you know for one on on the one hand they're concerned about things like piracy yeah but they're also concerned because um people are able to uh create their own home studios and record their own music and post it for sale on their own website because they don't have to worry about um the costs of pressing CDs or vinyl anymore although a lot of them do yeah um and, uh, you know, the distribution is you know, less of an issue now because, uh, you know, once the uh, marketing has gone out online, uh, rather than having to put up posters in stores and do, you know, uh, different events and things like that, you know, those are important, but, uh, a lot of bands can do a lot of that work themselves. Right. And so, you know, this has already been going on in the music industry, but, um, you know, this hasn't been so much of an issue for publishers until just recently. Right, right. Um, you know, and I, I didn't, I don't think we even touched on this when we talked about e-readers before. I don't even think about the e-books world going back that far, but it does go back to around 1971, mm. um, when Michael Hart started Project Gutenberg. And, uh, you know, they, the first person who got a, an ISBN, that's an international standard book number. It's a unique number assigned to every book. Um, was Kim Blagg, um, around 1998. So these, some people have been publishing, uh, electronically for a while. I mean, Random House and HarperCollins, who are two big, uh, regular publishers, P and E. Yeah. Um, you know, they were starting to sell digital in 2002. Um, and that was all before the, the Kindle hit in 2007. Well, yeah. And if you think about it, you know, there are a lot of computers you would buy that would come with an Encarta CD. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a digital encyclopedia. Yes. You know, that's, you know, just because it comes on a solid form of medium, uh, media rather, uh, that, that, that doesn't mean that it's not digital. It is digital. It's just that it's digital stored on a a disc. Mm -hmm. Well, the, uh, the e-publishing world is, is starting to shake up now. I mean, it's no secret that publishing has been having, uh, problems in the last few years anyway, especially with the economic downturn. Yeah. Um, I've read that the closing of borders stores here in the United States, um, that's going to create problems for traditional publishing too, because they can no longer count on, uh, the sales to come from the, the store. It's, um, if you're unfamiliar with this, the situation here, um, Barnes and Noble and borders and, you know, some of the other major public, um, Sorry, booksellers like uh, Books a Million. Yep. Um, basically were, um, credited with, I, I hate to say credited with, the, um, the closing of a lot of local bookshops right. across the United States over the past, what would you say, probably 20 years or so? Yeah, I think something like 
like the I I had the number in front of me at one point, but it was you know the 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 number of of independent little bookstores had uh, decreased dramatically, like by more than fifty percent, uh, because partially at least uh, due to these these big big bookstores that uh, could uh, just take away their business. Yeah. I mean, um, there are some that are big enough. People like Powell's in, in uh, Portland, Oregon and the Strand up in the uh, New York City area um, that are that are big enough to hold their own. But a lot of the smaller stores had had dropped out of the the uh, picture there for a while. And, yeah. I've got the number now. Mm-hmm. So uh, according to a an article in The New Yorker, um, uh, actually, the American Booksellers Association said the number of independent booksellers declined from 3,250 to 1,400 since 1999. Okay, then. So that's you know, more than 50%. And I read an article about the closing of Borders that said that publishers are going to have to cut their print runs because they no longer have border stores to help them distribute their books to readers. Right. Um, and that's causing more turmoil. And now with the popularity of e-readers surging and the ability of people to do things to publish on their own, this is going to to cause things to shake up even further. And um, Lion, the new version of the Apple operating system, some of you have written in that you want a, a podcast on it. We need to talk about the possibility of doing that and possibly Windows 8. Mm-hmm. The Lion offers people the ability to publish EPUB documents um on, you know, from different Lion documents. So, uh, you know, it's not, it's built into the operating system. I wouldn't be surprised to see that coming to other operating systems too in the future, which just makes it that much easier to publish your own ebooks. Yeah. Which can create another problem that we'll get into in a little bit. But before we do that, I wanted to talk a little more about some of the other problems that the publishing industry faces, which is that you've got some major, major companies that have not traditionally been publishers getting into the publishing game. That's true. And one of the biggest is Amazon. Amazon. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, Amazon and e-readers, that those two terms go very well together because we are all familiar with the Amazon Kindle, which revolutionized the electronic publishing industry. Yeah, there were a couple uh, e-book readers before. Um, I first became acquainted with uh, Rocket e-book and SoftBook back mm-hmm. around 1998. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were really expensive and there just weren't a lot of books at the time. Right. Uh, Amazon's uh, plan was to create this electronic book reader, and also they the, the company was incredibly intelligent in that they uh, created apps for various other platforms that could also read the uh, the electronic book format that the Kindle uses. Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, another thing to to point out is that we don't have a single standard for electronic books. That's correct. There are several different electronic book formats out in the wild, and one of the the really popular ones is the Kindle format. Yes, um, not AZW. And I think a lot of people like that format simply because since they have apps on various other platforms and uh, they can read it on a computer, they can read it on a smartphone, they can read it on their Kindle, um, that sort of, of uh, utility is a very high selling point. Although some other companies like Apple have done a lot to try and undermine that uh, in some ways with their own policies. We'll get into that as well because that also mm-hmm. plays a role in publishing. Yeah. So what makes publishers a little nervous or really a little nervous is being kind, really scared of Amazon. Uh, one of the things was that Amazon for a while was really adamant about dictating what the 
price was going to be for an electronic book. Mm-hmm. And Amazon's decision was that it was going to be nine ninety nine for a new release, yeah. uh, which – uh, publishers were not thrilled about. They did not like the idea of an, a vendor being able to say that this is what the price of ebooks needs to be because it meant that if that got into the minds of the consumers, that people would expect all electronic books from that point forward to cost that much. Right. You know, so it's reasonable. Right, right. It's like just like if you were to get something for free for several years and then find out that you have to pay for it, there's going to be that reaction of, Wait, what? Just last week I got this for free. Why are you making me pay for it now? Same sort of thing. It's like, wait, what? I just bought that book for 10 bucks last week. Why are you asking for 16 bucks now? I'm sorry. I was seeing pictures of the New York Times in my head. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so what Amazon was doing was actually pretty interesting. It, yeah. It was, it was kind of, uh, <laughs> Amazon does some pretty risky moves. And what this move, what Amazon was doing was they were, the company was buying books. Just like any other bookstore, like even digital copies, it was buying digital copies of books, just like any other bookstore, mm-hmm. paying the the uh, the wholesale amount to the publisher, and then that wholesale amount might actually be more than nine dollars and ninety nine cents. But Amazon would just turn around and sell it for nine dollars and ninety nine cents, meaning that they're taking a loss on the sale. Yep. But they're doing it in order to build up that market share to to attract consumers to using the Kindle platform and purchasing books through the Amazon electronic bookstore. And if they could hook enough people doing that, and they do it by selling books cheaper than any other vendor is going to sell it, because no most other vendors can't afford to cut the uh, the price that much and take a loss in every single unit sold. Right. Amazon can. Uh, the, but the idea was that maybe Amazon could eventually get what effectively would amount to a monopoly on the electronic books market. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, uh, the publishers did not like this at all. And in fact, we really saw this come to a head when uh, Steve Jobs announced the iPad and iBooks. Yes. Because then you saw five out of the six major publishers sign on immediately with Apple to provide books to the iBooks library. And the price was no longer limited to $9.99. However, Steve Jobs was very firm in that it would not go over, I think it was $14.99 per book. Yeah. They, uh, they, it's a, a different pricing model and the mm-hmm. publishers are getting a bigger cut. Right. Um, and there's an agency fee that that Apple gets out of it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, about thirty uh, percent actually. Um, so uh, the thing is, w- with all of this, that uh, you may be saying, well, you know, so what is all this this price? It goes to all those people we were talking about before: the editors, the publicists. Um, there's not the cost of printing or distribution. Um, I mean, yeah, this completely falls under, and, and it's. You know, we use this a lot, the long tail that Chris yeah. Anderson talked about, because um, books never have ebooks never have to go out of print. Yeah, you, they can be there, you know, taking up whatever space they're taking up on right. the hard drive. Right. Forever. It's brilliant. Yeah. As long as you have a, 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 a good program that can take a master copy and create a user copy from that master copy that makes that user copy unique in some way, because almost every single form of uh, of of uh, uh, ebook file format that the major publishers want to use will have some form of DRM on it mm-hmm. yeah, you know, um, to, to try and prevent pri- piracy. Yes. As a matter of fact, when the uh, uh, the book sale goes through, um, 
there's a little bit of metadata that's encoded in that file that keys it to you. So, you know, it, it's, it, that's how people know on some digital files that they have been corrupted is because that information is still embedded in there some yeah. way. And, the, you know, they've been cracked. And, uh, it is possible, but, you know, they, they, that's how, if you open a book on your e-reader, um, yeah, well, we were talking about, uh, the different readers. We didn't talk about the Nook. Right. That was one of the features of the Nook was you were able to lend a book to a friend with another Nook. So, um, the DRM says, well, hey, this is, uh, this is Jonathan's file. Um, and Jonathan, you know, allows me to read it and I get the, Three weeks, I believe it is on the Nook. Was it? I thought it was two. It, it may be, be two. Well, however long it is. Yeah, it's, it's authorized period. for a specific set p- period, and after that period, uh, the book is no longer available on the other device. And also, I think during that time, the owner of the book cannot read the book. That's correct. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. So it's almost like it's a physical book in the sense that if I lent Chris a physical copy of a book I have, I could not read that physical copy unless I came over to Chris's house and stood behind him and looked over his shoulder. And trust me, he hates that. So uh, not, never s- again. Knock yeah. is all I'm saying. You get stabbed in the thigh once with a fork and you do not need to tell me twice, mister. <laughs> so, But yeah, that's all done through DRM. Yeah. And, and so – you know, there, there are costs associated with doing this. And, yep. You know, sure. that, that's why they're, they're trying to recoup those costs. They're trying to make a profit because a lot of these are public companies. And also their business was built around a different model and to completely shift everything over. You could argue that the electronic model is much more efficient and therefore your costs would decrease dramatically. And therefore you would be able to make, uh, uh, as good or better a profit, even if you cut your prices, just because your costs are lower. But you have to remember, you're talking about revolutionizing an entire industry, which is not something that's simple to do. Um, and also, there is still a demand for printed books. There's not like that. It's not like the demand for printed books is completely vanished. No. It's so you have to balance that out. Like how much focus do you put towards your electronic publishing, uh, uh, arm of your company versus your physical publishing. Mm-hmm. But uh, but also, just to get back to Amazon for a second, another reason why publishers get really scared about Amazon is that Amazon has the potential to become a publisher mm-hmm. in that there is very little stopping Amazon. In fact, Amazon's been talking about doing this uh, from having courting writers to write directly for Amazon. So a writer writes a book and then Amazon acts as both the publisher and the vendor. This could theoretically be a very beneficial uh, uh, relationship for the author because mm-hmm. authors, if you if you take the advance out, like let's say that this would really change publishing. Mm-hmm. Uh, the advance is the big deal for authors right now. And if you are just starting out, that advance is your lifeblood because you may not sell enough books to have made that much money otherwise. Now, with Amazon's model, you may not get an advance. Instead, Amazon's model might be you will get a 70% cut of every uh, every book we sell. So you'll make more money per book sold through Amazon, but you might not make more money total because the advance you would have received from a traditional publisher might have been more money than you would have made through selling books in the first place. Mm-hmm. So it, this is like a weird gamble here. And publishers are worried that perhaps authors could would think that uh, they're going to have a, a much more beneficial relationship through Amazon. So they're going to go there. Um, they're scared about that. They're scared that uh, that Amazon will be able to undercut all the other sales of books. So that'll hurt sales even more. But 
uh, the publishers will also counter with saying Amazon doesn't really know how to work with authors. Mm-hmm. Like the, the relationship between authors and publishers is different than between uh, authors and a direct, like a vendor. Right. And that Amazon isn't the kind of company that can take time to talk to a new author and, and kind of discuss with the new author things and, and to, uh, to adjust deadlines. That was a big thing because mm-hmm. writers sometimes don't make deadlines. He, 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 Mr. <laughs> Editor. And, um, and so I'm meaning to talk to you about that. Yeah, I know. I'm a little behind, but the, uh, no, you're a big behind. Yeah, I know that too. Well, I like big butts and I cannot lie. The, um, but yeah, the, the, Amazon may not be able to take that time and effort to speak with an author the way a publisher could. So there's there are a lot of trade-offs that we're talking about here. And where this is going to go is anyone's guess. Although based upon the trends, I would say electronic publishing is is just going to continue to become increasingly important. So we may see more authors move to using a platform like Amazon as their publisher. Uh, this also pulls into question things like monopolies. Like would Amazon's writers, would their works be sold on any other, like through any other bookseller or would they just be available through Amazon? Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Yeah. This gets, that gets really complex. Uh, and, and honestly, we don't have all the answers yet. And speaking of complex and monopolies, it probably is worthwhile to mention some of the controversies that have gone on around the e-publishing model, including the recent, uh, as of the time of recording this in mid-August 2011, um, Apple telling Barnes & Noble and uh, Amazon that if they wanted to continue to sell books through their apps for the iPad, um, that they were going to have to fork over some money. So they... Yeah, 30% cut. Yep. So Just they, as, that's which is standard across all Apple, like that's Apple's standard operating procedure. Is that any any app that sells something to the end user, Apple gives a thirty percent cut of that. Yeah, an in-app purchase. Yep. Um, so uh, both of them pulled their sales link out, and of course, you could still buy a book directly from them and then upload it to your iPad if you want to do that. But um, for even, now, even that is a little complicated, I think, because I think there was a discussion about Apple saying that you could only upload titles from a Kindle app that you could also get through Apple store. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. And then they uh, Amazon counted with their cloud reader application, right. which uh, is an HTML5 reader that allows you to uh, it's not actually an app. Um, it's actually a site that allows you to read your, your Amazon books without, um, going directly through Apple and the, the Kindle app. So, yeah. and everybody's been crowing about that in the last few days as of the time we're recording this. So, right. um, and I have to say it's, it was a pretty clever move around that. Another, uh, big, uh, controversy has been around libraries mm-hmm. who, uh, who work with a service called Overdrive, which for a long time was an audiobook service for libraries, public libraries to, uh, you know, for people to, uh, listen to stuff. And basically you download the book through a, um, through a little app and then you could listen to it. And this, at the end of the, uh, checkout period, um, the DRM and it would shut it out so that you can't use it again. Mm-hmm. Um, and they began offering eBooks. Um, some libraries like the library that I belong to, uh, does not have, has, aud- overdrives audiobooks, but does not yet have the ebook 
um, capabilities, but I've seen it in action. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Thing is, um, one of the major publishers, HarperCollins, said um, that they wanted to limit the number of checkouts that you could use with an ebook to 26. And this caused a lot of library people to be very upset because, um, again, there's no wear and tear on an ebook. Yeah. But HarperCollins' point is, okay, but once a, a paper book has a, a certain number of checkouts, let's say about, you know, 26 or so, it's the book is frayed, the binding is bad, um, it's been beaten up, it's been left in someone's car, uh, you know, your kids spilled chocolate milk on it, it needs to be replaced. With an ebook, we're not selling more than one copy to you. Mm-hmm. You know, that one copy can be checked out indefinitely. Yeah. So um, a lot of people have been very upset about this. Um, the thing is, I could see both both sides. Once you bought a copy, hey, you know, you bought a copy. You should be able to check this out um, as many times as you want to because it's digital and it doesn't wear out. Yeah. At the same time, the publisher is not making anything past the original sale and a library would probably need to replace that copy, especially if it's a uh, popular book. So I could see. So what do you do? Yeah, I could see a consumer saying, if this were the case with the consumer, I could say the consumer saying, hey, what if I take really good care of my books and I never need to replace them anyway? Then you're telling me I'm being punished for using the electronic format. Uh, there's also the, the concept of windowing, where a publisher will publish the hard copy of a book months ahead of any electronic publishing. And usually this is done for two reasons. Well, three, really. One is that electronic books don't count toward bestseller lists. They, well, it depends. Now, New York Times does have an ebook bestseller list, and they have a combined print and ebook bestseller list. Yeah. But not all of them do. Right. There, there are a lot That's of, a recent thing. Yeah, there are a lot of bestseller lists that would only would only factor in hard copy sales. Yeah. Which means that, you know, publishers who want who who count on bestseller lists as being a, a marketing uh, ploy, they would not want to hurt the chances of a book getting on that bestseller list by also offering electronic copy and then let people buy the electronic copy but don't buy the hard copy and then the book doesn't get on the list. Uh, another was that they just were worried about cannibalizing the hardcover sales anyway because the hardcovers tend to cost more than the electronic ones. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the worry about piracy, although uh, we have seen with books that have either delayed electronic publication or not had any electronic publication at all show up as pirated electronic copies on various uh, peer-to-peer networks from people who have scanned the books in. The flip side of that being people like um, uh, Cory Doctorow, yeah. who have offered um, their ebook version of their book immediately yep. for free. Yep. And uh, I think Neil Gaiman has also done that. I know that there are several authors who have arranged it so that their books will publish in, in all formats simultaneously. And uh, the thing is, when they've done a trial like that, uh, a lot of publishers have found that the ebook will actually spur sales of the print book. Yeah. And I have done that. I have downloaded the free ebook and I've started mm-hmm. reading it and I said, well, you know what? I'd, uh, this was before I had an iPad. So yeah. I was reading it on a computer and I thought, you know what? I'm, I'm enjoying the first few pages of this book. I'm going to go buy the print book. And I've done that two or three times. Yeah. Well, there's some things that are still easier to do with print books than, than with electronic copies. I mean, it's just, yes. you know, that tactile experience, being able to put, sure. uh, you know, markers in your book. I mean, you can do that with a lot of the various electronic formats too, but it just, it's still, 
there's something psychologically that's just not the same with that. Mm-hmm. Um, at any rate, the the whole system of publication is kind of in this turmoil right now, and we really yeah. really don't know how it's all going to shake out. It'll really we've got a lot of stubborn players with lots of uh, lots of clout out there, so it'll really depend on who shouts the loudest and shakes their fist the hardest, and who has the most leverage and uh, hopefully, whatever happens will end up being good for authors and consumers. Yeah, I have and also for Chris's benefit, yeah. editors. <laughs> well, I, I have to say, I think the uh, the publishing industry has been a lot quicker to embrace e technology than the recording or the movie industry has. Definitely, either of those two. Yes, um, and and they've they've done so well. I think I think in general, everybody, the publishers and the technology. Providers and the readers have all made advances in working together to to make this happen. There's yeah. just a lot of issues that have to be worked out so that everybody is able to uh, coexist peacefully. Yeah, I have a or relatively peacefully. I would imagine that that one of the developments we will eventually see will have to be some sort of antitrust uh, charges against Amazon because even though there are other players in the electronic books market, I think Amazon's domination is uh, hard to. Hard to argue. Um, I know that iBooks, when it first launched, had a, a really positive launch, had a lot of interest in it. But from what I understand, the iBooks sales are not comparable to Kindle sales. And I think part of that is, again, what we mentioned earlier in the podcast, which is the Kindle app just provides for a lot of uh, flexibility since you can read it on various devices mm-hmm. and the the whereas the iBooks app is a little more limited and it works great if you have a lot of iOS devices but if you've got other ones that you would like to read stuff on uh that's kind of uh you're out of luck if you're using iBooks. Yeah. Anyway, the the situation is uh is changing dramatically and quickly especially for uh industry like publication which remained unchanged for decades. Uh, it was definitely one of those those legacy type industries that you know the, it the longer you stay the way you are the harder it's going to be when you when changes come mm-hmm. so it's actually kind of surprising to see how fast things are changing right now we'll keep an eye on it and we'll probably do another podcast in the future once things kind of uh shake out a little bit more to see sort of the pathway that we took and why people chose the the you know the different ways to get to where we go It'll be exciting. I can't wait to find out what I'm reading next. Anyway, we're going to wrap up this episode of Tech Stuff. We've got another one we have to cram in here in the studio before we get kicked out. So what I'd like to do is to invite all of our listeners to submit their ideas for topics that we should tackle in the future. You can let us know an email. Our email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. Or you can contact us through Facebook or Twitter. Our handle there is techstuffhsw. Chris and I will talk to you again really soon. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you?
Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. We all can't help but wonder what adventure lies just over the next ridge. A Nissan Rogue, Nissan Pathfinder, or Nissan Armada will take you there. If you're taking on your adventure in a new 2024 Nissan Rogue, class-exclusive Google built-in is your always-updating assistant to call on for almost anything. Google Assistant, Google Maps, and Google Play Store are built right into the 12.3-inch HD touchscreen infotainment system of the 2024 Nissan Rogue. Nissan's SUV has the capabilities to take you where you want to go. Learn more at NissanUSA.com. As someone who lives for politics, when a major scandal unfolds... It was shocking. I have to know, what were they thinking? Backroom deals. Huge amounts of money. CIA secrets. Sets off a firestorm in Washington. Affairs. No way this guy's got a mistress. Corruption. I knew I was a dead man. Warning. It's even messier than you thought. United States of Scandal with Jake Tapper, Sunday at 9 on CNN. Hi, I'm Antonia Blythe, and this is 20 Questions on Deadline. Joining me today is Alison Bree. Welcome, Alison. We got second place in my seventh grade lip sync contest for one of the songs on that album. The one that was like, you've already won me over. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. It's a very all slow. The, all the options. In spite of me. Like, what did we do? It's so slow. <laughs> Don't forget to listen to 20 Questions on Deadline. Thank you again, Alison. Thank you.